Walk in the Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast series that dials in on some of the basic tenets, principles, and overall ideas in Army doctrine. Hello, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and today I'm talking with some friends of ours from down the street at Army University Press, AUP. Some of our listeners are already familiar with Army University, its publishing house, and the wide span of products that come out of this little organization here on Fort Leavenworth. For some of our listeners, this might be hitting you like a battery of HIMARS. Yes, the United States Army has a university press. To help you process this new information, we've assembled a couple members of the AUP team, uh, and one of our Breaking Doctrine regulars to discuss AUP and one of their recently published publications, Enduring Success, Consolidation of Gains in Large-Scale Combat Operations. First, we have Don Wright and Eric Burke, co-author editors for Enduring Success and two key members of the writing staff for AUP. Don is a retired lieutenant colonel and holds a PhD in European history from Tulane and has worked for the Army as a historian since 2003. He's currently the deputy of Army University Press and writing fairly extensively on the global war on terror and also Desert Storm. Eric is also a historian with a PhD from UNC at Chapel Hill and his research focuses on 19th century land warfare, the evolution of military theory, and the influence of organizational culture and has served as an infantry NCO in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Gents, welcome. Thanks. Good morning. We also have one of your contributing authors for the book, Colonel Retired Rich Creed, who just so also happens to be our benevolent overlord here at the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate. Sir, welcome back. Thanks, Nikki. Well, gentlemen, welcome to the old USDB and the podcast. Good to be here. So before we start, I think it's always good to kind of put CAD and AUP in context with each other and how they work in the larger army. Um, before we get into the newest series or the newest book in the Lisco series, I kind of want to ask and give the audience a little bit better understanding of how AUP works with us and then how it works with the Army and beyond. So first of all, what is AUP? Well, that's a great question. And I would say first that we're about 50 people that every day come to work and we publish for the Army in a variety of formats. Uh, our purpose, uh, what we say that we do, is provide info and insights to military professionals to help them do their jobs. So everything that we do is for the men and women in uniform and the civilians who support them. Um, we like to think of ourselves as a 21st century publishing organization that meets, meets soldiers where they are. And what I, what I mean by that is on digital devices. So 21st century publishing organizations like uh, the sites that your audience might be familiar with, Task and Purpose, War on the Rocks. Uh, we are we position ourselves like those organizations. We know that roughly 50-60% of the visits to our website are through digital devices. And so that's how soldiers are seeing what we publish and what we offer. Um, and our website is the, the place where we present what we have to the Army um, soldiers and civilians. We get about a million visits per year to the website, so we know soldiers understand what we have out there, but we'd like to get a broader audience, and, and so that part of the discussion today is going to hopefully reveal what we offer for military professionals. Um, 
I think the next question had to do with what we offer besides uh, books. And I think that's probably the next thing I'll mention is if we're known for anything, it's probably Military Review, the journal that's been around for 100 years now. We're celebrating the 100th anniversary of that journal. And um, it now also exists in a variety of formats, one being the, the, it, the, the hard copy issue that people are, were used to seeing back in my day anyways in day rooms. But we also publish it in PDF variety that can be downloaded. So there's Military Review, published six times a year. And the authors in Military Review come from all backgrounds, serving officers and NCOs, retired officers, civilians, academics who have no military experience whatsoever. And we, we accept submissions from just about anyone. We put it through a review, review process before we publish it. Military Review, probably our best known publication. But there's also NCO Journal that publishes online only. Uh, for the NCO Corps, by the NCO Corps. There's um, the Journal of Military Learning, which is a biannual publication, peer-reviewed. We're pretty sure the only peer-reviewed journal in the Army right now that allows authors, researchers, writers to talk about um, training and education in a military setting. It's published by AUP, published by the Army, but we've had contributors from the Navy, from the Marine Corps, from other nations, so again, the, the, the only journal that we are aware of that's peer-reviewed and, and specifically focused on um, learning inside a military setting. We have our research and books team, which is the, the team responsible for the book we're going to talk about today and many other books, publish around eight to 10 books per year. Many of them are on military history, but we also take up uh, topics on leadership, on doctrine, on organization, uh, so the research and books team is a key member of our organization. We have the staff write team, which is interesting because it's not necessarily publishing defined narrowly. It's more of an educational service, but for your audience, uh, many of whom have probably been on staff rides, this is a team, the only team that the Army has that, that focuses on staff rides, developing them and leading them in the field when that's possible. It's a small team, but it does get out to the force and does lead staff rides also offers virtual staff rides, which are uh, very close to traditional staff rides, but the, the terrain is brought to the, the staff rider in the form of what looks like three-dimensional terrain. And so we have up, upwards of 12 or 15 virtual staff rides on Iraq and Afghanistan and some other uh, more historical uh, battles. Those are made available to the force too. And by the way, everything that I'm talking about can be found at Army U Press. Uh, that our website, you can just put that term Army University Press into a search engine and it'll come right up. And so your audience can see the staff rides that we have on offer, see the books, see the journals. And then the final thing I'll mention are our newest team, which is a documentary film team, uh, a group of about seven people who focus on making films for the Army, specifically on, specifically in order to pass on doctrinal insights, but they're historical and it's a way of, of telling the Army story, tell, offering historical cases in a different format, in this case, uh, films. And those films are making it into PME. We have a number of films already placed at the Command and General Staff College, uh, but not all of them. They're all on YouTube, and they're available to anybody who has access to YouTube. And uh, you know, we have four films specifically on Stalingrad that we produced about two and a half years ago, and they've racked up over a million views. And we know that people from Russia people from China, uh, from many other countries have gone and looked at those films and left all kinds of interesting comments about the story that we tell in those films. 
I think so, that's the best. I'm going to interrupt you. I think one of the coolest things about that, and it started with the Stalingrad, but some of the other ones too, is the feedback we get from retirees or people that never served who were history nerds who go and look at that stuff. And that's pretty high praise when you get someone to say, that's, that's better than what I see on the History Channel, you know? Yes, and there, there, there's a whole uh, thousands of people who, who follow the Eastern Front in the Second World War and specifically Stalingrad, and they've made, offered us some very kind comments on what we do. The, the one thing that makes our films unique is we incorporate some of this virtual terrain that we use for virtual staff rides into the films. And so, for example, in one of the films on Stalingrad, we can actually take you into this tractor factory. We can, we can bring you inside of it. We can look left, look right. We can go up and down, and we can show you where this, the Red Army had their defensive positions. Um, and there's no, other, there's no other films like that on the, anywhere, uh, certainly not on YouTube, that can give that, that level of detail on how these two armies were, were fighting in this, in this dense urban terrain. I was talking to so, one, of your, uh, one of your producers working on a Philippines, actually, and he said that the Philippines, that he's gotten a lot of comments and a lot of reviews and, and positive feedback from people in the Philippines who view it as being something or a, a chapter of their history that is not typically discussed and is not typically taught in their schools. So it's, it's incredibly influential. Isn't that interesting? Yes, yeah, so the, the, it seems like the Philippine nation has, has found these films and are, especially the younger members of, of their society, are learning about, about the Philippine experience in World War II from these films. Uh, so that's all probably more detailed than you wanted on AUP, but I did want to explain everything that we do offer to the Army. So, Eric, what is it like to work as a, as a young PhD with an organization like this? And what have you done as far as continuing your work in cooperation with, with other agencies around Combined Arms Center? Sure, absolutely. It's fantastic. You know, it's in, in many ways, it's a dream job for, uh, for, a, for a historian that's wired in a kind of a particular way. We have a, a whole lot of different opportunities. You know, all, each, each of the teams has kind of its own culture and its own um, set of, of operational tasks, if you will. I'm, I'm on the research and books team and, uh, you know, the lion's share of my work is focused on, you know, one of the things that, that kind of throws people for a loop as a, as a university press is that we also produce in-house our own books, which, which is not something that, that, you know, any other university press isn't actively writing. You know, they have staff historians like myself who are, you know, tasked with producing historical monographs that are research-based in order to, uh, you know, facilitate understanding of various other doctrinal concepts or aspects of military history that are relevant to ongoing, you know, tactical, operational, strategic needs of, of the Army. So having the opportunity to do that, you know, I have a lot of colleagues that are, uh, you know, not in a position to do quite as much research as, uh, as they, they want to, and they're, they, you know, they're constantly talking to me about how jealous they are of, of my, uh, my opportunities here. Um, but as far as, uh, you know, being, being situated kind of at an at a incredibly advantageous spot in the, in the Army universe, not just at, at Leavenworth, but, uh, you know, as a historian, a military historian, being able to, you know, walk down a sidewalk to, to Carl is, is an unbelievable resource. Uh, having, uh, being situated in this, this, uh, this broad population of not only historians, but military professionals and people who, who are actively engaged in trying to understand these ideas uh, whereas, you know, just, just frankly, when you're, when you're a, an academic, even as a military historian, I mean, in, in a normal academic setting, 
there's not a whole lot of people that care about consulting games in large-scale combat operations. Like, it's not a, it's not a topic that you have a, a, at a coffee shop. But for those of us who are wired that way, and some of us have, you know, military experience that kind of wires us that way, uh, it's a great place to be, no question. So what does, I kind of want to ask this, is there's a lot of organizations that we've hosted here on Breaking Doctrine, and AUP has a special place in my heart, but this unique partnership that we have where we share things back and forth is, is unique, really unique. I keep using that word, but it's true. So how does AUP, what, what do you guys do to contribute to CAD? We have written vignettes for, for previous field manuals and, and other doctrine. Uh, that's, that's in my almost 20 years here, that's been a recurring uh, contribution that we make to CAD. Uh, we consult with, the, I've worked with various directors of CAD just from a historian's point of view, um, able to you know, add or, or modify what, what, uh, what Colonel Creed, now Mr. Creed, was thinking about, discussions with them. Um, we, we do offer publications that can shape how some of your writers are thinking about doctrine along the way. And sometimes they come to us and sometimes they just go onto our website and then they do searches and find find what they need that way. Those are the main ways that, that I'm familiar. Uh, and I think the films now do, were always designed to work in partnership with CAD as a way to, to reinforce what CAD is doing. New Doctrine comes out, hopefully we have a film that follows that brings up some of the key points in the New Doctrine to maybe hammer those home or illustrate them. That's what I think, what do you think? Well, I, you know, all of those things are true. I think the other thing is, you know, the typical, most typical doctrine author, uniform person that shows up to work in CAD for a couple of years is a, is a relatively senior major. They may or may not have an uh, interest in history, and their experiences are rather diverse, and, and a lot of times their experiences uh, may not be congruent with what we need them to write against. And so, um, but being smart professional field grade officers, uh, they'll do the research to, to, to make themselves smart on things. But one thing that research doesn't always give you is the ability to visualize things. And those videos, um, those documentaries, uh, with all that archival footage uh, and, and the films and, and just the high quality in which the scripts are written, um, allows people to visualize things they've not experienced before. And if you can't visualize something, you can't write against it authoritatively because doctors are supposed to be authoritative. So you need the best information um, with input from the people who have actually experienced it, and that's what those documentaries provide. The books do, too. It's not just a, you know, we only, we don't just contribute into things one way or one way street. This is what it, CAD gives to AUP as well, or CAD contributes into AUP as well. Well, and right, so General Lundy's vision for this, and Donald, uh, keep me, make sure I stay inside the guardrails, but the, the guidance always was to use those documentaries to help people visualize that subject matter we were talking about. And, and so, you know, Early on, we, we played a, a heavy role in, in, in contributing to the script development. Uh, we don't have to do that as much anymore, but we still have people that participate uh, in developing scripts. And, and our participation is to, to make sure that when we want to address um, this historical campaign or battle, uh, which doctrinal uh, ideas do we want to emphasize for the audience and put them into 
uh, practical terms with this historical example, hey, this is what this looks like. When we say in doctrine, um, this is what we mean. And here's an, ex an actual, no kidding, real world example of what we mean. Uh, and we get interesting feedback from that. There's some people that say, well, you're using new doctrinal words to, to talk about an old thing. And I said, yes, that's exactly right. Well, that's not how they were doing it. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying that that's how they did it. What we're saying is this is the idea that the current doctrine. Yeah, I think in some cases history is used sort of subtly to shape how a reader or a viewer thinks about their profession. I'm thinking about a, you know, a military professional. Um, our book is not didactic in that sense. You can turn to a chapter in the book that we're going to talk about and we're not going to we're not going to put in bullet comments on exactly what you should take away. Uh, so it's a little bit more subtle, a little little bit more indirect. But these films, as Rich is talking about, are more direct. So so for example, in our film on the Battle of Manila, there's quite a bit of material at the end of that film about consolidation of gains, and we're very specific about how the the story in the film, the narrative helps illustrate certain key points that are in the doctrine. So that's a far more direct way that we're using history in, those, in that case of films, I think. Well, I think the other thing that we, we do is I, you know, I'm a volunteer member of the Military Review Board, so when Don gets an article submission um, and it's on a topic that, you know, eh, let's make sure that, you know, we're talking about this, you know, does this make sense? Is this... Um, something that would be of utility to the Army because the decision to publish or not publish is the utility to the intended audience. So we provide feedback just like a bunch of other people do in, in that regard. Um, and then, you know, when asked, we, we contribute to some of these books or review certain parts of, of different books in the series. What, there's 12 now? Uh, this is the 12th. This yeah. is the 12th, right. So probably in five or six of them, you know, over the last few years, Don, you know, sent me something and said, hey, take a look at this and just give me th your thoughts on it. So it's just a professional collaboration thing, just like we do with other entities, you know, in the combined arms. Center. I think that's one of the best parts of working here and, and being involved in projects like this is the fact that you do get to collaborate with some genuinely amazing and incredibly talented individuals on something that is producing a long-term impact on the Army and a long-term gift to the Army as far as a learning tool. So it's, it's awesome to see it in real time here in this job. Yeah, one of the funnest things I, I think I, since I've been in this job is getting to go over when, when they're reviewing the initial copies of, or versions of the documentaries and sit in a room with a bunch of smart people with popcorn and a soda and a notepad and a pen and everybody's going you know looking through this thing like a real hollywood film film editor right you want to get the content right you want to make sure it looks right so if you've never done that before or participated in making a movie because that's really what they are it's really a lot of fun and very professionally fulfilling yeah it's, it's been uh, a, a very interesting initiative and i think we're getting to an audience we didn't have until we had the team set up the films team set up so we talked before, I think this is a great way to, to segue into the big book itself, which is the Enduring Success book for the, the LISCO series. Um, part of we talk about you know, how do we develop what we mean in doctrine and also how do we use history as a way to communicate with, with a new audience. So this partnered contribution that we've done, I think what makes this book so really apropos is its focus on 
something that a lot of people said is, oh, it's a new concept. It's a new concept, consolidation of gains. But it turns out it really isn't. So when we talk about it in FM30, sir, do you want to kind of lay out what we talk about for the lay audience member that is listening in on this and is like, what is consolidation of gains? Right. So when um, the Army saw that uh, the campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan were winding down, um, U.S. Army Training and Doctor Command was working on uh, a future operating concept to focus the Army in terms of readiness uh, against a, a different operational environment uh, than the one that Army forces dealt with in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and so that started in about 2014, uh, at about the same time as the Russian New Generation Warfare Study and some other um, some other things going on in the world, uh, you know, the increasing assertiveness of, of Russia and China. And so I, I say that because Lieutenant General McMaster at the time was the Arctic Director in TRADOC, and he authored something called the Army Operating Concept in 2014. And the Army Operating Concept was supposed to, it's a relatively short document, I think it's seven or eight pages maybe, um, and it's uh, it was designed to set the framework for all the intellectual work going forward in terms of how we needed to change the army to deal with uh, peer threats like a Russia or China. And so within that document, um, he introduced the idea multiple times about, uh, you know, the army has got to be able to consolidate the gains it makes on the battlefield on behalf of the Joint Force Commander to meet national uh, strategic or theater strategic level goals. In other words, you're fighting a war or uh, participating in a conflict for a reason. What's the reason? What's the desired end state? And to achieve that, you work backwards from this idea that if this is the end state, then I have to have done these things during the campaign, and the Army forces contribute to that. So this idea of consolidate gains started then. All right, so that's part of it. The other part is... Uh, we're supposed to be a learning organization. You know, we have the Center for Army Lessons Learned. We collect uh, lessons and, and do after-action reviews and, and all the things that we do, or we're supposed to. Um, and that Army operating concept represented, in many ways, uh, a, a very broad after-action review of things that we needed to do better. And one of those things was consolidate gains, and specifically, they were thinking about uh, Iraq. Uh, to a little bit, uh, to a similar extent, Afghanistan, but that was a different uh, type of campaign. Um, and so General Lundy, when he was the, the CAC commander, uh, he and I and a couple other people sat down and, and we went through what are the big ideas we needed to get after. And the biggest new idea was this, uh, the, the requirement to consolidate gains. And that was informed by admittedly a, a layman's, a layperson's uh, perspective on history, but I'm an amateur history guy, uh, and that kind of, that problem, that oversight or that shortcoming uh, in 2003 was really something that kind of weighed heavily on us, and we wanted to make sure we get that right. We needed to address it. And so what we, you know, what was Consolidate Gains? And, and so in the book we say Consolidate Gains are the activities that make enduring uh, temporary operational successes and set the conditions for a stable environment, allowing for a transition of control, right? Control over land and populations uh, to some legitimate authority. Okay, so that's uh, not only what Consolidate Gains is, but we view that as a strategic role 
for the United States Army. In, in other words, that was something that only Army forces could do because of the scale and scope of the capabilities the Army has on land. Um, and so people misunderstood it. I mean, I, it was under, and it's understandable why they misunderstood it, right? Um, they viewed it as a, a stage uh, of an operation or a phase, and we, you know, we tried real hard for that not to be seen that way. Um, they also looked at it as stability. Well, it's not stability. All right, stability is part of that, but offense, defense, and stability are all uh, part of that. Um, and so we describe what those activities are, give examples of it. We have some historical vignettes in there that, that Don's team helped us with. Um, but we needed to put it in terms that essentially maneuver commanders need to understand. And so we really viewed it um, not as a new thing, but as a form of exploitation, right? And, and exploitation is a form of the offense. So first and foremost, it was about defeating the enemy in detail first. And if you consolidated gains, the big idea was if you consolidated gains effectively, you were creating a prophylactic against insurgency in the first place. If you effectively consolidated gains, there was never any insurgency to counter, certainly nothing effective at scale. And so that drove you towards thinking about the way you conduct operations uh, at the division uh, and above, you know, division core, land component command, a little bit differently. Because you had to think about risk, and you know, are you going to accept risk um, in terms of consolidating gains uh, by moving a little more slowly, a little more deliberately, introducing more forces in the theater, uh, much like we did in, um, in in Western Europe in the Second World War? You know, that kind of broad front approach that was relatively deliberate, um, or um, are you going to say we, we, we have got an imperative and maybe a political imperative, maybe something else that says we got to move fast. All right, so we're going to move real fast and then we're, we're going to consolidate afterwards, truly make it uh, a phase of the operation instead of part of each phase of the operation. And that wasn't a doctrinal call to make. We just pointing out that uh, that, that was true. And, and so I think we had compelling historical arguments for making this a big deal in our doctrine, and that's why we've kept it in there, um, even as we revise 3.0 now. Um, when you look in, in a very broad sense, the wars that are considered wins for the U.S. Army, we pretty effectively consolidated gains, maybe not as we went along, but ultimately we did. In some cases, it might have taken 100 years, but uh, we did it, right? Um, and in other ones that weren't quite as successful, particularly when you're dealing with, you know, uh, insurgencies, um, the failure to consolidate gains, you know, kind of colors people's view of whether that was a successful campaign or not. So that's kind of where we were coming from. I always joke about, you know, you need to read the book to understand what's in it. And it's funny. It states that straight out front in Chapter 8 of FM 3.0, the current edition that we have that the U.S. Army has always been required to consolidate gains with varying degrees of success in the Indian Wars, the Civil War during Reconstruction, after the Spanish-American War, during World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and more recently in Haiti, Afghanistan, and Iraq. So this is the idea that we're codifying something new in doctrine is kind of, it's, it's not new. This is something that existed. We gave it words and structure to be able to talk about it with maneuver leaders. I think the other facet of all this is eventually we're coming back around to, well, now we've got doctrine. We're talking about this. What, how did the Lisco book, Enduring Success, come about? Like, what was its origin story? And how did the three of you come together to, to produce this 
as as a complementary thing to Chapter Eight in FM three O. The uh, the Lisco series, because it is a series now, as you mentioned, we're, we're on uh, volume twelve. Started in late twenty seventeen when Lieutenant General Mike Lundy, who was the the CG of CAC, uh, directed AUP to write a book on military deception. It started off with just one volume. And he had understood that the Army hadn't done a whole lot with military deception. Uh, it was probably decades. Um, had, or had sort of at that, that ability to think and act on military deception had atrophied. So the, a book of, of um, historical cases would maybe generate some enthusiasm and interest in, and um, shape how the, the military deception proponents here at CAC was thinking about it. So we started on that volume. And then about two months later, he said, you know what, I don't want one book. I want, I want seven total. And, it's, and they're all going to be on different aspects of large-scale combat operations. He saw the LISCO series as a tool to help the Army refocus its attention from Iraq and Afghanistan, counterinsurgency, over to large-scale combat operations. And people who've or been around for a while know that uh, the thought was that the skills that were inherently relevant to large-scale combat operations also had atrophied between 2001 and 2015 or 16, something like that. And so the books would, again, help the force think about what is required in large-scale combat operations and the way the series was broken down. This was General Lundy sketching on a whiteboard. He wanted a volume on maneuver, a volume on fires, a volume on um, engineer support, mobility, counter-mobility, information. I can't remember all seven of them, but there was a... What's that? Sustainment. Sustainment was another one, and military deception was also a part of that. So those were the first seven, and then we started talking about what would follow. And we have one on special operations, we have one on uh, the last 100 yards, what it's like in the close combat zone. Um, and, and this is the 12th. So consolidation of gains was also, that was the last one that he mentioned specifically. He wanted, and then he, before he moved, he retired. And so this is the, we're at the end point of the, the General Lundy vision for the large-scale combat operations series, but we're also working on one that General Hill and General Martin have discussed, and that's on leadership. What is, how does leadership differ in large-scale combat operations uh, versus other types of operations? Now, the real question I've, I've got, and this is probably a different podcast, but to what degree are, are these volumes going to be relevant to multi-domain operations when that comes out as more than just a concept, an actual doctrine. Uh, but that's another, another topic. The origin story then goes back to, it goes back three or four years. And so we've been publishing this series for that long, and we continue to publish this series. I, I would throw out to Don's point, I, there's probably going to be some value in, in, in an, a volume that perhaps addresses uh, a multi-domain approach to operations, but um, the whole, the fundamental ideas that undergird MDO are not new. Um, some of the capabilities are relatively new, but even those capabilities, you know, uh, have been with us for a while. Um, so I'm not sure we need an entirely new book series. I think a much of what's already been written is applicable because MDO includes large-scale combat operations. It includes irregular warfare, it, and it includes uh, many of the things we do during, uh, as part of an integrated approach to deterrence, right? like the new NDS is going to say. So, uh, you know, I don't know. 
I'm not sure we need a whole new thing, but we probably need to look at things like we've done in some of the documentaries and talk about uh, historical events in terms of a multi-domain approach to operations, which is essentially a joint approach to operations, right? So. So there's a lot of fluidity that occurs when it comes to large-scale combat operations. And one of the key tenants that comes out of, or not, it's not a tenant, one of the key thoughts and ideas on consolidation of gains uh, that comes out in FM30 is that it occurs in portions of an area where LISCO is no longer occurring. And that's that's a tricky thing to determine, especially tactically, and then also to come up to, to a larger organization or to a larger echelon. Do, do the case studies from enduring success kind of prove that true or false or, or what? And was, what was the evidence that shows just how fluid the battlefield is? Well, I think in, to kind of speak just a little bit more about, about the origin story of the book, I mean, it, Don came to me in, I guess it was the fall of, of 2019, and, and told me that, you know, th- this is the next volume, this is what we want to work on, and, you know, the first step of this is to kind of... Uh, feel out the terrain in a way that allows us to produce a literature review that uh, helps us determine when we begin to get submissions about, you know, when, when we put out the call for papers and, and authors in the, the scholarly community say, hey, you know, this is, this is the case study I want to write about. Does this fit the bill for what you're, what you're looking for? We have to do a literature review in-house to figure out what does the scholarship on, the, you know, the military history scholarship on the concept of consolidating the gains look like. Um, and that's tricky for a lot of different reasons, but principally because, I mean, when you're doing volume on fires, you look for artillery. You look for, you know, uh, aviation support uh, and, you know, those types of, of tactical and operational capabilities and events. Um, but because of the, the kind of amorphousness of consolidation of gains, uh, and it, you know, it's, it's deliberately abstract because it is essentially, as Mr. Creed pointed out, an effort to ensure that leaders at every echelon are consistently tying their actions to whatever the broader political and strategic end state is. And there's a tendency, again, at every echelon, because of the increasing complexity of, uh, you know, gaining dominance on the battlefield and, you know, achieving overmatch and defeating a foe to kind of lose sight of the ball and get tunnel visioned into the, the particular tactical and operational problems that are confronting a force. Uh, and you know, this is true about war writ large, but it's, it's definitely true on the battlefield. To lose sight of the ball in a way that uh, makes you forget that there's, you know, there's multiple ways to skin a cat tactically. And, uh, you know, you can achieve your tactical level and operational ends uh, in a number of different ways, but not all of those ways are as well calibrated to what it is that the Army is trying to accomplish in that particular theater, in that particular contingency, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, and interestingly, the same thing happens in the literature. It's, you know, you, you, we've got mountains and mountains and mountains of operational narratives about every campaign that you can possibly dream of. Uh, and understandably, perhaps, because you're trying to sell books, most of those narratives follow the, the flot, right? They're, they're, they're up there at the pointy end of the spear. They're not saying, well, yeah, and then 2nd Battalion uh, was back there securing the LOCs. And, you know, there, there weren't a lot of threats to the LOCs, so we're just going to write a chapter about it anyway. I mean, that's, but, but there, are, there are challenges associated with those activities that are imperative that in many campaigns are fundamentally more important than what's going on at the flot. 
Uh, but yet it doesn't sell books because there's not a whole lot of people that you know aren't in a professional military audience who need to understand those concepts, which is our principal audience. And as Don pointed out, I mean, we want to expand it as much as possible. But our principal audience are, are the folks who are going to be engaged in consolidating gains uh, in the future. So we went out and, and uh, you know, I crafted a, uh, a kind of internal... I don't know, memorandum, you could say. Historiographical essay. Historiographical essay, yeah, I guess it's the term of art. Um, just on all of the, the, the kind of salient episodes, the most salient episodes of attempting to consolidate gains, not only in American military history, but especially in American military history, just because it's, you know, it's always going to resonate more with our, with our target audience. And, you know, there are a handful of things that we can, I'm sure we'll talk about that, that kind of popped, but the, the, the sources that were going to be required to, you know, develop for our authors to, to develop a, a study like this were challenging because, you know, it's, it's, it's on a short timeline. You don't have years that, you know, people can go to the archives and spend just forever looking for, you know, the, the vestiges of reports that are, are, you know, haven't been published yet because they were, uh, you know, Everything has been focused on on the front line, uh, but it was kind of stunning in the aftermath how much fundamentally new, never published material was utilized for this book, and for that reason, because there hadn't been a whole lot of effort uh, to to unpack these events and these operations in the past, and uh, and so that allowed us to not only make a product that was. Um, you know, useful to the military professional, but also has some just raw historiographical value in and of itself in terms of contributing to military history more broadly. No, everything that is not the pointy end of the spear is not sexy. What? And as an infantryman, that's very difficult for me to say, but it's, uh, it, it is very accurate. Hey, to, to, to build on uh, some of that, uh, what we struggled with after we published the doctrine is just to keep people because the bigger ideas are relatively simple, but they get conflated real fast because people want to say, hey, well, I'm going to do a mission statement, and the mission statement for this brigade is you're going to go consolidate gains over here. And we said, no, no, you're not. That's, that's the wrong answer. And to the force's credit, we, I think, largely avoided that problem, but it was an educational process. So, right, we get back to the side that consolidate gains is a role to, for the United States Army as a service, right? It's also a purpose associated with the task that you assign different army echelons over different parts of a campaign or battle or series of engagements. Um, and we tried to stress that it's got to be this larger purpose in the back of your mind that the way in which you conduct the campaign should not hinder the ultimate consolidation of gains, right? So. That could manifest itself in a lot of different ways, but you know, minimize the amount of damage to infrastructure, minimize the amount of uh, civilian casualties. I mean, all things that you want to do anyways, but a lot of times it's important or more important for people to understand the reason why. And when you put it into those kinds of terms, as opposed to saying, well, it's because you got to comply with the ROE, right? All right, so the ROE is important, but that's not the the purpose isn't the ROE isn't the end state. The end state is this outcome that you want. Um, the other thing we said is, you know, if you're in a brigade or a battalion and you get assigned a mission, the mission is going to be to go clear uh, 
this this area in your zone of attack between phase line X and Y. I'm going to seize something. There's very specific meanings to these different doctrinal terms. But taken into the aggregate, the effect is we are consolidating gains, you know, either in, in a portion of the campaign or as, as we as we fight the campaign uh, and, and uh, operate as we go along, right? And so we we try to get people not to get hung up on the the tactical tasks, but to understand you may have to do an offensive task to do this, right? And that over time things change and really what the historical perspective tells you is that at the time you're conducting a campaign there may have been some genius planner that the way they put this thing together that was their intent it may not have been explicit but that was their intent and then the campaign is fought a certain way that gets that as an outcome and so what we were trying to get people to think about is not worry about that and let the aar or the historian determine how well you did it right and there's a little bit of nuance there but Again, if you're a, the, the, the infantry platoon le leader or platoon sergeant, I'm just getting a bunch of tasks that I have to be able to execute. But if I remember in the back of my head that ultimately, hey, we're here to, to get this positive enduring outcome, I'm going to execute those tasks or pick and choose certain tasks differently than if I'm treating it as a punitive expedition where we're just here to kill people and break things. So that gets back to the, the bigger thing that we've always said is it's great to know the why behind some of this, but whether it's the historical written work and the consolidation that you guys did for this book, or it's the why behind the doctrine, I think that's, it was very clearly shown with some of the case studies that you guys pulled together, all three of you pulled together for this. Well, and like we knew, again, from the amateur, you know, dabbling in, you know, a dangerous limited amount of, of knowledge, that there were examples in our history where we had done certain things to consolidate gains. It was never spoken of in that way. And what we needed Don's team at, at, at Army University to do was to help us put that into context, right? Like, did this actually happen the way we thought or were interpreting it? Uh, what does the literature say? I mean, that was hugely helpful to us because there's, the, the, wor the only thing worse than having no vignettes in, in, a, in doctrine as far as I'm concerned is to have bad ones or inaccurate ones, right? Because the last thing we need is a mythology because then people focus on picking apart uh, the example we're trying to give instead of trying to learn from the example uh, that we're providing. Uh, you, had, you asked a question, I think, that in, induced this larger conversation about where consolidation of gains happens, correct? Yes, so that gets into this tricky little area that, that we're all, there's just so much angst about this consolidation area, which we know is changing, and we know that is that is shifting out of out of our battlefield architecture. But I think that there is still something to discuss larger about how does how does the tactical operation look, and how does it ultimately occur? Like, what were the case studies showing? Yeah, I think that, and we kind of touched on this just just uh, right now. I mean, the, consolidating gains isn't something that 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 only occurs in the rear area. I mean, it's it has to be. Uh, a, a concept and an idea that is wedded to every action and every behavior that is that is uh, or decision that's made throughout uh, you know the, the battlefield. However, uh, you know the kind of laundry list, if you will, of because uh, in order to talk about what consolidation of gains is, 
in anything but the abstract, you know, as the, the doctrine does clearly, um, is lay out a list of, well, okay, here, here are some tasks that are commonly, have historically commonly been associated with consolidating gains in a way that, that is at the, you know, focused on connecting the tactics and operations to, to strategy and political ends, um, but isn't the same thing as tactical consolidation. It's not about just, you know, you took a position and now you're making it defensible. It's about, you know, even though it's the same word, it's the same language, uh, you, you are consolidating the things that you've achieved strategically and converting those into political success in the, in, in, you know, that's wedded to what you're in theater to do in the first part. So a lot of that type of activity, because it's so easy to lose sight of the ball because of the ongoing sparring with an actively violent enemy, um, some of it has to take necessarily second seat to the immediate tactical problem at hand. And that is ever increasingly the case with ramping up, as, we, as I mentioned earlier, with, with the complexity of the, the foe. If you're, if you're facing some sort of near-peer, you know, quasi-multi-domain foe, then there, there's a lot associated with that tactical problem that can lend itself to losing track of what's going on because you're, you're so overwhelmed by the situation at hand. And that sometimes necessarily means that the lion's share of the consolidation tasks are taking place behind you. They might be immediately behind you. You might be setting up some of the, the you know, the, the pieces for the, the, the troops who are in a, you know, an operational reserve uh, role have to then begin the process of doing. Uh, things like corralling up, um, you know, shattered elements of, of bypassed enemy units, uh, you know, clearing up res pockets of resistance, those types of just, you know, offensive tactical tasks that, you know, if, you're, if your strategic or political goal in, uh, in a country is to, you know, remove an invader, if you will, um, then remnants of those invaders hanging out behind the front line is not good for your locks, and it's also not good for your strategic in-state because the entire reason that you're there is to try to, you know, remove these, these entities from that country. Um, and that's just one example. And it's, it's uh, you know, it, if your political instate has something to do with, uh, you know, addressing some sort of humanitarian crisis, if it means that, you know, as in Iraq, you're attempting to change a form of government and, and remove, uh, you know, one regime and replace it with another, uh, you know, all of those things have to inform decisions that are made all the way across the line. And, it, and it's, you know, as a... As a veteran of the tactical level, I know how easy it is to not to stop caring quite so much about those things and care first and foremost about keeping your soldiers alive, making sure that they're safe, doing as much damage to the enemy as you can, but first and foremost bringing everybody home that you possibly can. And you know, obviously, that doesn't shrink in importance ever, but there are ways to do that and irresponsibly. Uh, you know, operate in a way that is not calibrated well for the political objectives. And there are ways to do it that are better calibrated for the strategic and political objectives. And that's what consolidating gains is all about. And that's why it happens all across the battlefield. And it's a case-by-case -case basis that, and in, in, in the book makes clear that, um, in so, insofar as we, we talk about where it happens and when it happens, because there's a, there's a temporal and there's a geographical 
arm of this. Uh, you know, it's, we, we say in doctrine that it's, it's, uh, it's not where ongoing LISCO are happening necessarily. That's what the doctrine says. And, and, but, but, but by that is meant more a, a temporal thing rather than a geographical thing. So you know, if, you're, if you're, all your focus is on fighting, Actively, it's still got to be in your mind, but you're not necessarily going to be doing a lot of these tasks that we conventionally associate with consolidating gains until you've at least carved out a little bit of space to begin to assign troops those tasks. Which kind of nests right back to the, the original definition, this idea of setting conditions for this stable environment that allows a transition. And inevitably, it's transitioning to a legitimate authority, but it's all of it comes back to that transition based on conditions. So it is. It's very temporal. We should have Eric like help us write uh, the next treatment of, of consolidated gains and doctrine because that summary was uh, extremely clear. You know, and, and I, I took a note here, and I'm going to put a call-out box in the next three. Uh, but, you know, consolidated gains is the desired end state of every conflict and campaign. That is the actions and objectives that you're working backwards from, not the seizure of objectives themselves, which is the clean war view of things, uh, war is a targeting exercise, and, and, uh, and ignoring that human dimension of conflict, right? Because that's ultimately, uh, if you don't win there, you haven't won because the other guy hasn't given up yet. I, I, I would just like to throw out a point, and this volume makes it abundantly clear that this idea of consolidating gains isn't new, it's just new to some people, and hopefully not new to too many people anymore after we've kind of emphasized it for a few years. But um, we had some real uh, heated discussions from time to time as to why that ever would have been so in the first place. Like, why was it um, second nature to folks uh, during Reconstruction or uh, in the Philippines uh, at the turn of the century or uh, in the Second World War, that consolidating gains was just inherent to what we were, we needed to do. Like, we, we kind of knew that. And I think the operational environments have something to do with that. Um, and it also may have been bad lessons learned from wars that were very unusual, like a Desert Storm, right, or a Kosovo, that were very short, very cheap, and didn't involve occupation of, of land masses, right? Um, at least long-term occupations of land masses. So I think that was it. And, and I think there were some Cold War things that just kind of caused us to stop thinking about that. And, and, and it had the, to do with the nature of the coalitions we were a part of. Right? So when you talk about a Korea, where you talk about uh, defense of Central Europe against the Warsaw Pact, you're doing it on the home turf of your allies. And when you're doing it on the home turf of your allies, they have their own equities and, and, and political imperatives. And they're going to feel a sense of responsibility for actually doing that. And so we did have all kinds of things in Army doctrine that would enable the coordination between us and an ally to make that uh, happen more smoothly. And then our war plans incorporated that to a very large extent. But it wasn't primarily our problem. Um, and so I think over time you had people say, well, that's not our problem. That's not what the Army does. It's not, we're not getting into military governance. You know, don't even say those words. Those things, those are bad words. Um, when in actuality, 100 years ago and further back, that was the norm. 
And as a former member of the reserve component, I would also say that was sometimes by our active duty counterparts pushed off to all those civil affairs units yes. in the reserve component. So, that, you know, there was, I think, what, one brigade of civil affairs uh, in the active component in the 80s and 90s. They were going to do this stuff. That's where the specialists were because they were thinking about it as, as a stability operations, right? Um, so that may have contributed as well. I'm so glad you brought that up because I really I wanted to say it so badly, but, but thank you for jumping in on that. Well, one other thing I wanted to bring up when we were talking about geographically or spatially where these things happen, um, of the 12 chapters that are in Enduring Success, 11 of them describe actions that I think would fit in that description behind the forward line of troops. It may be tactic, maybe an offensive operation, but it's behind the front lines. But there's one that does happen right there in the midst of large-scale combat operations, and that's the one about uh, 101st Airborne in Market Garden. And we included it in this collection for that very reason, because it, it, it seems like an outlier, but to give a very brief sketch of, of this operation, Operation Market Garden was a, a combined um, airborne and mechanized attempt to get over the Rhine River in late 44. Uh, and so, so it's, uh, it's mainly U.S., Canadian, and, and American forces, uh, uh, and British forces. The 101st are dropped on a road that's going to be the main line of communications that's going to get the mechanized forces all the way to the city of Arnhem, where the British 1st Airborne Division has dropped. And that was where the, the bridge over the Rhine River was. So the 101st is dropped right there in the middle of, of where this large-scale combat operation is going on. But essentially what their role is at the operational or yeah, the operational level was to consolidate gains. That is, protect the line of communication. If, it, if the Germans were allowed to interdict that line of communication, then the mechanized component of this operation would not be able to get up to Arnhem and relieve the British 1st Airborne. So there, the, there is the 101st Airborne Division, and they are fighting every single day. The Germans are counterattacking. At the same time, they're linking up with Dutch resistance. Uh, they, are, they are conducting what would pass maybe as stability operations while they're also conducting offensive operations, defensive in nature, and maybe some old, their, their own local counterattacks. So it's this mishmash of things going on. And I'm not, if you ask a division commander or those battalion commanders involved, I'm not sure how they would describe this. They probably wouldn't say I'm consolidating games. They would probably describe it as I'm, I'm trying to kill as many Germans as possible and trying to keep my guys alive so we can keep the road open for the 30th Brit British 30 Corps to get to Arnhem. I just bring that up because it's not a clean example of what we're talking about here. While most of the other chapters are sort of very, uh, they sort of fit into that template of stuff that happens generally behind the forward line of troops. Well, and, and your perspective on whether you're consolidating gains or not is completely associated with what echelon you're at. So I would argue that uh, Somebody from uh, one of the U.S. Or, or Republic of Korea Army divisions trying to clean up the North Korean forces in 1950-51, south of the 38th parallel. As far as they were concerned, they were conducting offensive operations or counter-guerrilla operations, right? And, and so, uh, and that's okay. Reducing uh, those German festungs or fortresses behind uh, the Allied advance in France, you know, in some cases it took a year or eight months or six months or whatever, you know, if you're a battalion commander, maybe even a brigade or regimental commander at the time, you're not thinking about anything other than 
that was close combat operations, but you are at the operational strategic level consolidating exactly. things. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. If I could just say just, just one more thing about what Mr. Creed was talking about with, um, you know, that just the, the challenge that we have had with, uh, as an army, clarifying the need for these types of things. There tend to be historically, I mean, it's true that throughout its history, the army has done way more quasi quote unquote military governance and, you know, what we would now call regular warfare than it's done anything else. Uh, I mean, it, it was, uh, it spent the better part of a century and a half doing almost nothing but military governance activities uh, and, and things that we would now associate with kind of consolidating gains activities you know, in the West and, and everywhere else. But there tend to be, just like with the historiography, just like with, you know, ongoing operations, the uh, taking your eye off the ball phenomenon, we could call it, there tend to be inflection points doctrinally in the history of, of army doctrine where we take our eye off of the ball in terms of the the kind of I don't want to say the the the, the adjective theoretical but almost the, the theoretical the fundamentals of war and war fighting and the need to connect things to everything that you do to the political and strategic in state that you're you're aiming at uh, and, and, and 1976, for better or for worse, for all of the advantages that came out of the, the uh, you know, General Depew um, changes to the way that we think about Army doctrine, was also a period where the Army looked at, you know, Yom Kippur in, in 1973 and said, wow, you know, this is, this is just, we are blindingly unprepared for this at a tactical level, it appears. Uh, and thus, it's going to require such a massive overhaul in our thinking and our doctrine in the Army itself uh, that what you get is a manual that fundamentally just divorces itself entirely from anything but the immediate tactical and operational problem, similar to what you see on a battlefield where you've got a force that is uh, you know, overwhelmed by enemy capabilities, and that's such a complex problem, that's all we're going to focus on right now. We're not going to worry about the politics and the strategy. And it takes a story, it takes a, you know, a decade worth of quote-unquote operations other than war to kind of save us from ourselves as an army and realize, okay, hold on, there's a lot more going on here than just knocking out Warsaw Pact battalions as they, you know, come across the, the, the border. Um, and what's great and what I see as, as uh, you know, the, the 2017-3O's inclusion of this is almost evidence that for all of the, the, the heartache that we faced in prosecuting uh, the, the uh, you know, Operation Iraqi Freedom and, you know, the, 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 the missteps that were taken early on with failing to consolidate gains, this is evidence that we're not making that same mistake again. We're not just saying, well, you know, the, the increased lethality, the increased complexity of the multi-domain battlefield is so great that we don't have time to focus on the fundamental nature of war. We've got to get troops ready to, you know, face these tactical tasks and then they can, you know, the State Department or somebody else can figure out how to pick up the pieces in the aftermath. We know that's not the case. And we have, you know, I think that our, our doctrine is ever increasingly becoming more and more honest about our understanding of how the Army's contributions to the whole of government effort 
have to be calibrated to that whole of government effort. It can't just be the, uh, you know, General Depew approach to, well, you know, our doctrine is going to be filled with, you know, penetration charts on, you know, how, how you knock out T-72s with certain weaponry from various distances. And that's that's the capstone manual. I, uh, and, and so I think that we're, we're marching in the right direction here. And this is this is a really good example of, of how we're keeping our eye on the ball. So the, the case studies in the book provide a lot of good examples, the positive examples. But there are some case studies that did provide examples of where we just we absolutely failed to learn the lesson and the value of consolidation of gains, which is, it's interesting to, to provide that kind of, of really in-depth in look into our, into our own history based on our own doctrine. Um, well, you well, know, but, but the utility of looking at failure, um, not just to learn or to not try to repeat, you know, something that somebody else already learned the hard way, um, but it also drives you towards thinking about the whys. And so it's not because people were stupid, although sometimes there's always stupid people in any, or ignorant people in any era, right, uh, or any situation. But looking at the constraints associated with the resources allocated to this or the po desired political outcomes that were no way, you know, the, the ends and the means and the ways were not congruent in any way, shape, or form. Um, and then you get into individual cases of moral courage and leadership and, 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 and those kinds of things. Um, and so we did have some pushback when we were writing this, particularly when I was briefing and it was still a draft um, with some retired senior leaders who initially misunderstood what we were doing. They were looking at the doctrine as a critique of them personally. Um, and when we explained that actually the doctrine uh, – is being written to ensure you are not going to be critiqued personally for things that were beyond your control. And once people understood that, they became our greatest supporters on this. I mean, some very big names in, in uh, Army history in the last 20, 25 years. And so they became powerful advocates for this idea. Uh, and I'm pretty sure General Lundy heard a lot of good news based on the work that you guys do with this volume too. Were there any case studies that stood out to you guys as being ones that really, if, if you read nothing else, read this, and why? Well, I think that the one that will be, uh, that might resonate most with our audience today, because people who had experience in OIF would be the, the final chapter, which I, I authored primarily because I had worked and researched and written about OIF earlier in my, in my time here at Fort Leavenworth. So that is about consolidating gains in Operation Iraqi Freedom. It's specifically about the the, the six weeks between, or eight weeks between the, the crossing of uh, the, the Kuwaiti border and then getting to Baghdad. I didn't get into, I wanted to limit that because I had, it was an article, not a book, but also because the way we're talking about consolidating gains is, is this initial, uh, the initial part of a, of a campaign uh, everything that came after, one can argue, that everything that came after May of 2003 was a different campaign. Uh, you have the CPA involved, you have uh, the dynamics change. So I was really focusing on what did CENTCOM think it was doing to consolidate gains, uh, knowing what, what the political, the overall political goals were for Operation Iraqi Freedom. And what you find is a very mixed bag. 
I will say it wasn't a complete failure in the short term, but ultimately the failures that, that did exist led to long-term problems. Uh, you know, we're, we're there until 2011, and why I don't think anyone would argue that we had a complete success when we leave in 2011. So what I would say is that, that the, the planners at Suncom and at CFLIC had almost a decade to get ready for this war. If you consider the planning or thinking about going back to Iraq begins right after Desert Storm ends. So you can argue that in, by 92, there are people in the Army, the people in the joint community thinking about what happens if we have to go back to Baghdad. You'll remember that the sanctions were in place and, and Saddam was still defiant and there was this possibility. And so the, the planning that actually does become very active after 9-11, and we're talking about really November of 2001 through the, the late, the, the February of 2003, uh, that's where they, they consolidate all the thinking in the previous decade. They did understand, the planners at CFLIC did understand that because of the goals, that because the goals in Iraq were as broad and ambitious as they were, regime change, um, a st to the degree possible, create a stable society uh, where you have Shia and Sunni, you have problems there, you got problems between Kurds and, and Arabs, uh, figure out how to create stability there, revitalize re the economy. So this wasn't just defeat the Iraqi army. It wasn't just get to Baghdad and seize, seize the city. It was far broader than that. Okay, they understood that part. Uh, President Bush was very clear about that. The planning documents that have been declassified are very clear about that in 2002. And they did think big in consolidating gains in the sense that they knew they had to seize curtain, uh, certain parts, key parts of the infra economic infrastructure, specifically the oil fields, they had to be secured. They had to secure hydrological nodes like the Haditha Dam that provided about a third of the total electricity used in Iraq. These things were planned. Uh, they put, not only did they, they know that they had to do these things, they identified units to do them. And so you have special operations forces that seized uh, petroleum facilities on the Alpha Peninsula south of Basra. You have the, the U.S., uh, the, I think it was the, the 1st Marine Division identified to seize the oil fields near Basra. You have Special Operations Forces identified to seize the Haditha Dam and make sure it isn't destroyed by, by Saddam and his forces. That stuff happened. Um, the search for WMD, they did, they did create a task force that was going to go in and did go in and search facilities to try, try to identify where the active programs for chemical production of chemical weapons, biologic weapons, nuclear weapons, that happened. What didn't happen was the far more fundamental planning for what we would call basic stability actions. What happens when you, when you get into a, a uh, Iraqi city and governance has completely disappeared and the economy stops? Who's going to run the city? Who's going to stand up uh, the, the local police force? Who's going to get the water plant running? That, those types of things were discussed. And, and the plans were made at the CFLIC level. In fact, you know, one of the, the people that I talked to for that chapter was Colonel Kevin Benson, who was the, the CFLIC C5, the, the, the chief planning officer, and he made plans. But as he's mentioned in a number of venues, it was hard for him to get the attention of the CFLIC commander 
about what would happen after the combat was over. And so while he had conceived of what the overall stabilization plan would look like, it wasn't operationalized. I know that's not a doctrinal term. What I mean by that, that uh, units were not assigned to do specific things and lower level tactical units were not trained or prepared to do things like run a city, like, like refurbish a, an electrical grid. That did not happen. It was on paper. Uh, the plan itself was issued out to the Fifth Corps on the one hand, and I think First Marine Expeditionary Force on the other, but it wasn't issued until late April, as I recall, and we were already in Baghdad by that point. The reason why this is important, and, and there was all kinds of improvisation. I mean, U.S. soldiers, U.S. Marines, British soldiers did, did a reasonable job of improvising on the ground with what they had and what they understood the larger mission was. But they didn't always have the know-how. They didn't have the equipment. They had, they, that transition was rough, very rough, uh, if, if it happened at all. Okay, why is this important? You know, everybody talks about, and Kevin Benson talks about, as an army, we always, we don't worry about what happens after the war is over. We worry about winning, in, in the, at the, at winning the combat, uh, defeating the enemy. The reason why people believe that it's important now, and this is in a couple of chapters, and I see it popping up in other places, like in discussions on Russia and Ukraine. There is a, what's called a, a, um, a golden hour, where when you go into a, a situation like this, you have the goodwill of the host nation population for a very short period of time. And the more you look like you're either incapable or unwilling to try to do the things like refurbish the economy, rebuild the electrical grid, uh, bring some kind of stability to society. The longer it takes for you to get your act together and try to do those things, the less likely you're going to have the population on your side. And this is argu arguably what happens in, in that, that month-long period after we go into Baghdad, where looting breaks out, there is um, all kinds of disorder inside the city, and it looks like American troops aren't doing anything. They are, but it's hard for the Iraqi population, the Baghdad population, to see that. And that is a result of this lack of fundamental planning at the front end of the planning process that goes back into 2002. Well, there's an attention, right? So even if there, as you said, they pointed out there was some planning, okay, you got to resource the plan. And so if you're pulling forces off that, that gives you that capacity to put enough people, even if they're not the perfect match in skill sets, just having somebody there is an issue. I had this discussion in both Iraqi and Afghanistan with relatively senior Iraqi and Afghan officers that, and it's a, it's a basic army thing, right? When there's a group of people in a room, somebody's always in charge. Well. You just took over the country. You're in charge, man. You may not want to be in charge, and you may have not got the word out to everybody that you're in charge, but that population expects that you're in charge. And I would argue incapable or unwilling aren't nearly as bad perception-wise as incompetent. And so you're here to make things better, and all we're saying is you just made things worse. And so you get looked at as, okay, why didn't you guys just take over and start running everything? I mean, I had that conversation multiple times. And the reason was that we didn't prepare people to do that, intellectually or uh, in terms of resources. 
And I think the, those limited cases of success, and I would think I'll be charitable and say 50% of the units probably did a pretty decent job in their own areas. The people, the leadership that was doing the right things up front were the same uh, people who were very frustrated in 2006 when the counterinsurgency doctrine came out because it treated everybody as if we had never known these things before, right? But if you had been in the Balkans and only a fraction of the active duty army had been in the Balkans in, from 96, 95 to say 2003, um, you kind of knew what right looked like. And those were the units who had, you know, field grade officers, battalion and brigade commanders. They were the ones that were doing uh, what could be done, right? Because they, they had a, a vision for that or, or a picture they understood. If you had no experience with it whatsoever and it was not part of the plan and briefed in orders, then you were significantly handicapped in there. Peace and stability always requires that, or permanence of peace, I would say, requires a certain level of magnanimity by a victor or an occupying force, anything. But it also requires you to think ahead to be prepared to be magnanimous and to set conditions for that magnanimity. So, Well, if you're the good guys, you've got to be the good guys. Right, and sometimes being the good guy means you got to be hard on the people that are disrupting uh, all those things. Yeah, if I could just add, you know, this is not this is about as far from doctrinal terminology as it gets. But but I I frequently think of it as you know there is an access problem and there is an action problem in in any strategic effort, any operation, any you know anything else. I mean, the action problem in Iraq was to to change the regime. Uh, at, at the top and to encourage the cultivation of a democratic state that was stable. Um, that was the problem at hand. So the army needed to train and prepare to change a regime. Whether or not the Republican Guard attempted to prevent us from changing that regime, is that's the access problem. That's, that's getting in the front door so that you can then do the things that you came to do on the inside. And if you obsess entirely on the access problem, and your assumption is that, well, I'm going to kick in the door, but then once I'm inside, then it's somebody else's deal, uh, you know, unless the entire strategic objective was just to obliterate the Iraqi military as a fighting force and then leave, then you have not set yourself up for success. It's, you've got to be ready first and foremost for the action problem. You've got to be ready first and foremost to do what you were sent there to do. Because it's also possible that as soon as you cross the, uh, you know, the border, the, the entire enemy force concedes your, your presence. And then if you're wholly unprepared to run the country, then uh, it didn't matter how, how, how well prepared you were to, to gain access to the situation. You know, if you're going to steal something from, from some building and, and you spend all your time trying to figure out how to get into the building but have no idea where the thing is inside that you're looking for, you're going to fail regardless of whether or not you were, you were uh, successful at breaking and entering. That's a good point. That's Consolidation of gains point. requires you to be prepared for overwhelming victory exactly. as well. Absolutely, yes. Is there any other case studies that were extremely poignant about? The, the, the other one I want to bring up is actually the first one. And, and we also were happy to get this, this chapter. And that's about American forces in the Philippines. And the reason why I, I think both Eric and I really wanted that one included is because the U.S. forces into the Philippines in 1898. And 
get it quickly embroiled into a larger war. They didn't have any strategic guidance. So it, as hard as consolidation of gains is when you know what the strategic goal is, imagine what it's like when you send a force off somewhere and it's very unclear or your political masters won't tell you. They, they, they refuse to be specific enough that will allow you to create a, a campaign plan that can attain something that is similar to a political objective. And in the case of the Philippines, they don't initially know what the political goals are in the Philippines, whether or not the Philippines are going to become a colony or a, a dominion of the United States, or will they be granted their independence, or will they be given back to Spain, the defeated power? And then it continues to change after, uh, after it becomes kind of clear that it's going to be not be given back to Spain. And so the, the U.S. commanders on the ground are constantly waiting for word on what they're supposed to do. So perhaps that won't happen in the 21st century, but I, I may, maybe it will never be that unclear, but you can imagine political guidance being murky. And then what do you do when you're thinking about consolidating, consolidating gains? Yeah, I think the, I mean, you guys would know better uh, based on your research and studies, but we would have enjoyed zero success in that regard if you'd not had an army that was accustomed to benign neglect on the frontier where policies were continuously changing and, and you were dealing with multiple uh, Native American nations uh, and those conditions would change from decade to decade and you were out there no comp, no real modern communications, you know, maybe weeks or months out of actual direct contact with your higher chain of command. Uh, so if you didn't have a, an army culture that uh, was prepared to endure that uh, to a certain extent, particularly the senior officers in their junior days on the frontier, I think you would have had uh, much more disastrous outcomes in terms of what actually happened in the Philippines. But that's just a, a guess. Any others you can think of uh, that that where failure was uh, definitively shaped the consolidation of gains effort? Uh, there, there's a chapter on um, on the the Aufmarsch, uh, the, the the German invasion of Belgium during the First World War, uh, and there's a a great deal of attention paid to the uh, the failure of of especially the German general staff to consider the contingency of the Belgians not just blithely capitulating to German incursion. Uh, and while simultaneously you've got a, a pressing and urgent need to maximize combat power at the front end of that spear because the entire invasion plan hinged upon speed and very swift decisiveness, because obviously if Germany gets pulled into, you know, what they would call a material schlacht of, of just a long-term attrition fight, then they know that there's absolutely no way possible for them to win that. Uh, but of course, the among many other planning failures associated with that maneuver, um, the, fail, the, the failure to consider what happens if the Belgians don't just roll over. What happens if we have to then, uh, you know, divert combat power which had been you know earmarked for the front to doing things like you know mopping up pockets of belgians in the rear containing you know uh, and, and and fighting for liege uh you know all all of those types of things 
were not necessarily decisive in the failure of that maneuver, but they certainly didn't help. Uh, and it was a fundamental failure to, con to uh, plan for and conceptualize the potential problems. It's not just branch plans. It's, it's the, uh, you know, what's going to happen when we, when we invade this neutral nation that might alter our ability to be successful um, at the front. And so that's, a, that's another salient episode of not necessarily a, a failure of consolidating gains tasks, but certainly a failure to think about what it's going to entail to consolidate gains uh, in Belgium in that situation and you know, build out your force structure appropriately uh, to include troops that will do those tasks instead of having to rob from you know, the Schwerpunkt, if you will, in order to you know, feed the, the consolidating beast in, in Belgium. What was your model access and what was the other word? Action. Yeah, so the access and action. So you get to this idea, and again, the doctrine kind of touches on that. Where are you accepting risk? You know, is it all about the access first uh, or, or am I doing the actions first? And so if you make the assumption that the consolidate gains was just automatically going to happen because they'll be intimidated, right? In other words, it's not that I'm not doing it. My assumption is I'm not going to need to do that because they're not going to have the will to resist. You know, you see parallels like going on right now. In fact, we had a discussion with a bunch of smart strategists here this week where everybody's arguing about, you know, the Russian army and, and, and you know, what's the, what's the problem? Well, there may be doctrine problems. Uh, there's no proof of that yet, but there may be training problems. There may be an experience problem. There, there may be planning problems. But one of the things that we pointed out is this co the course of action problem. And the course of action problem is I had one plan, which was I was just going to move. I was going to do that. I had one limited access issue, which is decapitation of the regime, right? And if I do that, then my action stuff could happen on a timetable. And so I could just drive on six different axes into and occupy a country because I, the action part of it, um, didn't require a lot of access. I, hadn't, my, I wasn't taking the access problem seriously. Now you've got a situation where they, they don't have access or the access that they thought they'd have because they had to fight their way in on all of these places because COA1 uh, failed. And I've got my forces now out of position. And so when we talk about campaign planning and thinking about consolidated gains as the end state, uh, when you're talking about large formations, uh, particularly of ground forces, once you position them someplace to execute a campaign or a large-scale operation, repositioning those for a different course of action is extremely difficult. And so we should probably have a little bit more humility when we take a look at this because when you take time and political imperatives and all that, when COA1 failed, exactly how much time do they have to reposition everything to get f favorable correlations of forces and then execute a different access plan? Uh, and I just think that's something that's been somewhat under-evaluated uh, so far. Well, and then there's also always the risk that's associated. You have to actually resource that as well, and you have to put training and effort behind that sure. in order to make sure that your forces not only know how to come off the front in order to be able to reposition to a new GOA, but also be able to execute just basic mobility, transportation, sustainment, and so forth that sets those conditions. 
comes back to the fact that it's not sexy, but wow, it's critical to achieving success. Not to mention just basic securing of your lines of communication, which is a consolidation of gains activity, which doesn't seem to be happening uh, on, a, on a consistent basis in that particular conflict. And on this particular topic, I will point out we do have a chapter on the Soviet consolidation of gains in Manchuria in 1945. And it's, it's, it's very interesting because the overall strategic goals were quite different than what American forces were doing in Europe at the same time. So um, our, in our, you know, as the audience might think about picking up our book, that chapter is an outlier as well because uh, the goals were at, as important to the Soviets was getting the labor force out of Manchuria and back into the Soviet Union because so many Soviet citizens had died during the war. So they were actually rounding up people and sending them back to the Soviet Union. That for them was consolidating gains as well as establishing uh, communist party groups in this new terrain. So it's a different way of thinking about consolidation of gains. It's not what we would necessarily do, uh, but it is it fits within the overall concept. And we included that chapter in this collection because we wanted to make sure that, that readers would understand that that concept can be seen in a completely different fashion along the lines of what we see Russian consolidation of gains might be attempting today in Ukraine. So the future of consolidation of gains is kind of, it's an evolving thing, it's constantly changing, and the way that we look at it should be done as well. Is there a future edition of Enduring Success that could include the experiences of our previous conflicts or the, the most recent conflicts we've had? And then also some of the, the conflicts that we're seeing globally today. There is, did you ask me if there are another uh, an additional Enduring there's there are different additional volumes of in the large scale combat operations series that may be coming out. But as far as additional chapters for this, none of those are contemplated right now. If I didn't answer your question, you can ask me again. I can. So you're fine. But I think there's going to be because we have an urban operations. Is there an urban operations themed book in the series? In other words, city fights. Uh, because I think there'd be an interesting, interesting intersection between uh, operations in what, you know, the, we have the clinical term dense urban terrain, but in and around cities where the people live and consolidating it, right? Because I think what we see unfolding here is because of that failed access initially, you got to fight your way in. Um, and some interesting things we learned in terms of uh, the Russian armies. Tactical logistics only has 80 kilometer legs or some, you know, some number close to that. And the rest of it's railhead up to that point. And so if you've got to use railhead to, to move uh, your commodities forward and then it gets moved back and forth on wheels, that drives you towards most rail lines go through cities. And that would explain a lot of what's going on now. But if your end state is somehow to have uh, Russia-speaking parts of Ukraine as part of a greater Russia, and I don't know if that's the, the big idea or not, but just assume that it was. Their methods of access are completely ruining the, the outcome that you would want in terms of the activities you would like to see done for you to control those areas. If you destroy the whole place, you know, you just destroyed the economic basis for making those places prosperous after the conflict's over. Uh, 
So it's this whole yin and yang or chicken and egg kind of thing that's kind of fascinating. And, and, and you can almost feel like I forgot what my initial focus was, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Absolutely. You know, I mean, if my initial focus was to do this and I'm destroying it, you know, it's the old destroy the village to save it thing. It, it, it's not going to play out well. And that, and that tends to spiral historically, especially in cases where you feel like you are losing your grip on the situation. It, it tends to, uh, you know, one of the most kind of vivid cases in, uh, in relatively recent military history is, is the, the Wehrmacht on, on the Eastern Front in the latter portions of, of the Second World War, where, uh, you know, these field marshals who, I mean, what, what is the strategic end state other than try to stop this, this just uh, tidal wave from rushing into to Germany? But, I mean, everything is, is so... Uh, wildly unhinged that there's this obsessive narrowing of focus to okay I've got to got to defend this bridge and I'm just going to focus on that right now and just pretend like my left and right flanks don't exist and uh, you know I, I there there is no limit to the amount of combat power that I'm going to apply to the situation because it's just everything has spiraled out of control and the more things spiral out of control the at the tactical level and at the, at the operational level the less and less Leaders at Echelon are interested in caring at all about what the political and strategic end state is supposed to be because everything's falling apart. So, you know, yeah, I totally agree. You know, uh, uh, launching MLRS barrages pell-mell against, you know, major urban areas in order to hopefully, uh, you know, have some kind of moderate counter-battery effect is not a good way to win hearts and minds. If your objective is is some sort of, you know, long-term stability effort, uh, which regardless of what the political and strategic ends are over there, has to be some component of the long game. And once again, like like we said earlier, I mean, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. And uh, at, at some point, you have to ask yourself, are the ways in which I'm going about prosecuting this conflict actually calibrated for what I'm trying to do. And if the people at Echelon, at the junior echelons, don't even know what you're trying to do, like we talked about in the Spanish-American War and in the Philippines, it's very difficult to do that. It, it's impossible to, to do that, unless it's just by sheer luck that they happen to coincide. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on and talking today. Anything else that you'd like to make sure you leave our audience with before we close out? No, I just want to thank uh, these guys for coming over. Uh, we've been trying to get this done for a while. And I, this has been one of the, the, the more fun intellectual back and forth. I think the value of these books for the Army, I would just put a plug out to our listeners. Uh, take a look at these books, the way that they're written. You know, um, They're not written like novels. They're written so that you can pick and choose those topics that interest you the most personally. And then if you get really hooked, you can dig in and, and, and go through all of them if you want. Uh, I think it's a brilliant idea by our old boss, and I think you guys have done an absolutely fantastic job pulling all these different authors from across the United States of America in to, to contribute to our professional uh, body of knowledge. And we, we want to thank you for the opportunity to, to talk about the volume. And I, we should also thank our contributors because they, they work for free, and they spend many hours on doing the research and, and the writing here. And I would, I would only offer, uh, invite, the, the listening audience to go check out our website. We keep on talking about the book, 
but I want to make it clear that everything that we publish, including this particular volume, Enduring Success, is available as a PDF download. So uh, our website's pretty user-friendly, pretty intuitive, and you just go to Army U Press or Army University Press, and you will find us, and you'll be able to download this book and find those chapters that are of great interest to you. Absolutely, yeah. And, and also, obviously, uh, a thanks to Dr. Kate Dahlstrand and the, the, the larger research and books team for, for all the work that they put into uh, you know, editing and, and polishing everything. Um, but thank you for, for inviting us. Really appreciate it. Colonel Erwin Hunt might have been more prophetic than he knew when he said that in the philosophy of war there is no principle more sound than this. The permanence of peace depends on the magnanimity of the victor. His experiences in the civil affairs as a civil affairs officer in the Third Army in World War I were detailed in his study, The American Military Government of Occupied Germany, 1918 to 1920, and can be found online at the Combined Arms Research Library's digital repository. Hunt's work was pretty influential when it comes to historians and leaders in discussing the consolidation of gains today. In preparing for today's podcast, I went back to the book, FM30, specifically Chapter 8, to talk about and to learn about foundations on consolidation of gains. And it also set up all the information or all the considerations that I needed to get into the current edition of Enduring Success and Consolidation of Gains, which, as we said, is available for download on the Army University Press website. Beyond Enduring Success, I also reached into some of the lessons and ideas that some of our SAMs and ASLSP students do here at Fort Leavenworth, which included consolidation of gains in large-scale combat operations, a theoretical framework for operational planners by Lieutenant Colonel Chris Fowler, infantry, policing the consolidation area by Major Chris Farrington, United States military governance by Colonel Nathan Springer, and 1948, the Arab-Israeli War, victory and consolidation by Major Andreas Montenegro. For a little more perspective about consolidation of gains in GWAT, I also referred back to Three Perspectives on Consolidation of Gains, which was published in ni- or, uh, 2019 by Military Review and written by Lieutenant General Retired, now, Mike Lundy, Colonel Retired, Rich Creed, Colonels Nate Springer and Scott Pence. We'd also like to thank our listeners for joining us today. Our production is coordinated by Mr. Ted Crisco, and our editing and sound is provided by the perpetually caffeinated Captain Wyatt Harper. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts and leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at U.S. Army for our U.S. Army Doctrine for updates from the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate. You can follow the amazing team at Army University Press at Army U Press on all the usual social media outlets for updates on their new publications like the Let's Go Book series. Also, you can follow Eric Burke on the tweeters as well at XV40. RDS, especially given that his new book, Soldiers from Experience, The Forging of Sherman's 15th Army Corps, should be hitting bookshelves sometime this fall. And finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and this has been Breaking.